0: UK Motor Talk Hello, welcome, good evening, good afternoon Whenever you're listening to us, hello and welcome back Uh, We're here at UK Motor Talk and I'm Mike I'm Jim, hello, hope you're keeping well
1: I'm Graham, good evening to you all
0: and unfortunately, David can't be with us this evening because he's accidentally slipped something into his uh, Alfa Romeo. It was not even his Alfa Romeo, it was someone else's, which makes it even more awkward. But we'll come back to that later on, or hopefully not. Actually, let's definitely not come back to that. Uh, actually, as a thought, things that don't belong to you. Now, there's been an alarming rise in cat thefts, hasn't there?
2: Are you on about cat as in meow or something else? no.
0: That's that's dogs. Everyone's going mad for dog thefts at the moment. You can't uh, you can't be in any kind of community group without uh, someone shouting about that. But I'm talking about car cats, catalytic converters. Ah,
1: I, you know I thought this had, uh, had sort of died out a few years ago. I mean it was a big story three four years ago. Uh, I think seemed to have gone quiet. But uh, there have been a lot of news stories in the last 48 hours. Uh, police forces around the country. One that caught my eye was Kent Police, who would had. Uh, ten cases in seven days. They'd caught a couple of people, which is uh, a sense, nice result, but they showed a bit of CCTV of uh, some woman's cat being nicked from under a car while it was parked in her drive. Cheeky, to say the least, but also incredibly dangerous. Uh, somebody, I believe, got seriously injured recently when a car fell on him.
0: No, better than that, he got killed. Basically, it was outside a garage. He jacked the car up, and the garage had left the the car in neutral and the handbrake was off. So when he jacked it up, it rolled backwards off the jack, uh, and then completely landed and just squashed him.
2: Well, I think it's the uh, the old adage of play stupid games and win stupid prizes, isn't it? Let's uh, let's be fair. But the, was was he included in the number of people that they caught? Because that's probably quite an easy uh, an easy arrest, isn't it, If the guy's lying there dead on the ground? But I, hey, why not include him?
1: Certainly didn't do a runner.
2: <laughs> was his cause of death COVID, or um, was it something else?
0: <laughs> if he'd had a positive test within twenty-eight days, perhaps. Oh, it's um, definitely
2: COVID then. Yeah, it's definitely COVID. But I
1: understand that the uh, rare metals that these things are comprised of, particularly the platinum, have suddenly shot up in value. Yep. And that's why um, it's become uh, a great thing to Nick and. They're changing hands for four or five hundred quid a piece, I gather.
0: Some of them more than that.
1: Old Hondas, I understand, are a target.
2: Here's another argument to go towards EVs then, isn't it, I suppose, because they don't have catalytic converters, and if uh, if you happen to take an angle grinder or a, a cutting implement to the wrong part of an EV, then uh, you're in for a bit of a shock, I think.
1: I <laughs> quite literally. <laughs> Intended. You raise the matter of how these things are, I actually got off, because having worked on, on my own... Over many years, exhaust systems, it's a hell of a job to get exhausting. an angle grinder under a car and actually cut out a, a cat or a section of the, the exhaust pipe.
0: It's not too difficult if you, A, don't really care too much about how you remove it, and B, use something like a cordless disc cutter, which I think is what they've been doing. But to, mm. it seems to be Japanese cars, Toyotas particularly, that are being targeted because they're worth an absolute fortune.
2: The chap I bought my, uh, my old MR2 off was unlucky enough for one of his cars to fail an MOT one year on, uh, on emissions because the catalytic converter had collapsed. And I think his, his fleet at the time, he had uh, the MR2, his wife's car, uh, a little runaround for himself, and then a BMW V12, so of course that had two catalytic converters. We so probably went out and bought decapped pipes for absolutely everything. Uh, so I just uh, I used to swap mine. Every time, you know, a bit of track use only for the decap pipe, of course. But that was, um, yeah, that, that was a bit of a piglet of a job. You needed about eight extension uh, bits on the socket set to be able to thread it through the alloy to get to the uh, the back bolt for the cap. But yeah, if uh, if you weren't fussed, you could um, quite happily take an angle grinder to it. But you, c- you can get, you know, useful consumer advice. You can get supposed anti theft kits for catalytic converters, can't you? But mm. as far as I can work out, they're just bits of metal that. Whether they bolt in, protect the bolts, you know, shield the cat, etc. If if they're just bits of metal, well, if you're taking an angle grinder to the exhaust, well, if you can cut through the exhaust, you can cut through pretty much anything, can't you?
1: But it's yeah. not it's not exactly a quiet uh, quiet crime, is it?
0: No, they're quite brazen about it. The, during yeah. the day, you can see that you, the, there's been a few videos that have surfaced recently of four guys turning up in in a golf, pulling up alongside, jacking the car up at the side of the road, and cutting the cutting the cats off.
2: If you wanted to be really brazen about it, I and mean, I've always said the uh, the best way if you want to steal a Porsche or a Ferrari or something like that is to put on a nice suit, get a badge that's got the relevant logo on it, Ferrari, Porsche, whatever, and it says, I don't know, Bernard on it, and, uh, and stand in your local Porsche dealership's car park, uh, and when a customer pulls up, say, oh, hello, sir, welcome to wherever town Porsche it is, and uh, valet parking, infoservice. Oh, yep, go and see my colleague John in there. He'll look after you, and the chap will probably quite happily get out of his car and uh, leave it running, and off you go. So I think if, uh, if you were going to nick catalytic converters, well, if you had your van sign written with, you know, budget and scarper mobile mechanics, nobody would think twice about a car being jacked up at the side of the road with a a mechanics truck next to it, would they?
1: It's amazing how little car dealers will actually check on the the bona fides of people that turn up. I mean, I did the best part of 20 years of of road testing and only two garages ever checked my driving licence, a Porsche dealership and a Rolls-Royce dealership. And the Rolls-Royce dealership, that was easy because I had a fax from... Shows how long ago it was. Fax from Rolls-Royce from <laughs> factory, a fax from Rolls Royce from the factory, giving me the OK to uh, borrow one of their cars. Much to the dealer's annoyance, but
0: did they they fax through your your face and just like the X's or something, or it was like no, no, no. <laughs> a really early emoji?
1: No, it was just a just a, a, a fax saying, "Please let this gentleman have one of your cars."
0: So there we are. Useful
2: useful consumer advice. If you do want to steal a Rolls Royce, simply obtain the fax number of your local Rolls
0: Royce dealer and <laughs> send them a fax. <laughs> Uh, it was always quite surprising years and years ago when I used to work in a car rental company and you'd walk in in a suit and just say, "This is, I've come to pick up this car, here's the registration number and quite often people would give you the keys um, mm. and away you'd go. And I asked once for our head office if they wouldn't mind awfully if we could have ID. So when we go and we can say, look, this is me, I come from here and you can ring this number to verify or whatever. And uh, they said, no, we can't give you ID because it would be too easily copied. So they said, I decided it would be better to not have any... Which is obviously much harder to copy than having on <laughs> That that entirely describes the the logic of uh, this particular American car rental company.
2: If, for legal reasons, shall uh, shall remain nameless. Remain nameless. Yes. yes.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. If, you, if you're yeah.
2: an enterprising soul, you could probably work
0: out who it was, though, couldn't you? You probably could, but they they were absolutely fantastic. We... I mean, Pretty, to be fair, if you're a customer, pretty good to be a customer, I think. And like many American companies, you know, bend over backwards or forwards or bend their employees over backwards or forwards, depending, to make sure that people are completely satisfied.
1: Not if you're at Malaga Airport, they don't.
0: <laughs> well, maybe not there. I, I tend to find as well that a lot of the, the attitude depended on the the attitude of the person that was renting the vehicle in the first place. But nevertheless... As, um, as these
2: things normally do.
0: I remember when I, I handed my notice in on that fine day and... Uh, I, you go up to to the head office to have a, a debrief as to why you're leaving, and I explained the reasons because so they, they had lots of interesting ideas, like the car that you give a customer doesn't make any any difference to the level of uh, you know to, to how they they perceive their experience. So if I give you a, a BMW or a, a Matiz, it wouldn't make a difference to how you how your your experience the rental went, for example. But I, I said the reasons why I was leaving, and uh, they said, "No, that's not right." What? <laughs> this, I said. So I, I repeated, "No." I'm, these are the reasons for leaving. They go, no, that's not right. Okay. Doesn't fit our uh, tick
1: boxes. <laughs>
0: yes. Yeah, that's, no, that can't be the reason why you're leaving Pittsburgh. No. Very, very bizarre. <laughs> Have you guys seen that Ferrari are building a new uh, Hyper Series Le Mans car?
1: Yes, yeah. Introduces a whole new concept to me, which is a, a sort of a new class at Le Mans, apparently, of hypercars. Yes. Um, and I, I believe really? that they have to be more or less road legal, more like super-duper track day cars.
0: Yes, well, one th- think is interesting about this is Ferrari have been in Le Mans for years and years and years and years, obviously we know, but they were racing in the GTE class with normal, I say normal, but, uh, but road-based or road-shaped cars uh, racing. So this is going to be a proper hypercar. I think it's interesting that Ferrari are sticking their finger deeper into that pie I suppose, bearing in mind their their other motorsport interests.
1: Well, I guess there's a lot, a lot of money to be made there. I mean, that, all the hypercars that I've seen mentioned have been sort of one to two million price brackets, Some actually more than that. So there must be a fairly substantial profit margin in that. I think we're we're looking at what uh, Aston Martin, Lamborghini. Uh, I think there, were all the bit all the big players. Peugeot, yes, yeah. Well, it's hardly a surprise. Under their new guys,
0: surprise—that's of... that very not really surprising
1: for really... <laughs> Well, not, not really. How, how many times have Peugeot won Le Mans? Have a very, well, very good record there.
0: Well, if you're interested in a, uh, a Peugeot Hyper Four Hundred Six or something, then I think this would be, uh, this would be brilliant. <laughs> but I'm not entirely sure. Seeing uh, Peugeot competing in Le Mans is going to be enough to make me rush out and buy one. To be honest,
1: I, I was going to say Audi have been hugely successful, obviously at Le Mans. Uh, and have had the sort of run of successes that uh, Porsche had in the 70s and 80s.
0: Mm. Well, I think Porsche, Audi, Toyota, th- they've all been hugely successful over time, haven't they, with different uh, drivetrains and diesels and all kinds of bits and pieces. But I-, I think it'd be interesting to see Ferrari in there at the top and and potentially aiming for a, an outright win at Le Mans rather than a class win. I think that's that's
3: interesting.
1: Yeah, I'd, I would very much welcome that. I'm a big Ferrari fan, as you, you know, so I, I'd certainly welcome any area of motorsport that they choose to go into, but I can't imagine them really getting into uh, electric hypercars or electric GT cars. I st- I still like the the V twelve growl.
2: It's a, it's an odd one, isn't it? I mean, who who would have thought a few years ago that Ferrari would be coming out with uh, with SUVs and electric cars and things like that? And you yeah. know, McLaren even McLaren with their you know possibly viewed as as more aggressive or forward thinking in their technologies and less traditionalist, despite their uh, their age as a company. And you know, they have a plug in hybrid now. Um, mm. I'm not sure what the company car takes on, uh, on an Archer is, <laughs> but, but probably better than a, a
0: 458, I would have thought. We, we can't ignore the fact that, that electric does give you the opportunity to augment an, an engine to give you more power, to give you...
1: More torque.
0: And torque vectoring. Yeah, for example. See, that's actually, I think that's out, out of uh, all the benefits that
2: my FEV gives me. The MPG and the quietness and the the bigger parking spaces uh, and, and the, the wonderful sense of smugness when uh, creeping up on people in car parks in electric-only mode and then beeping the horn at them. Uh, you know, aside from all that, yeah, the torque, one thing, it just fills in the gaps in the internal combustion engine and it just makes the car more complete. It flattens out the torque curve. Um, and just makes it a nicer, quicker car to drive with better MPG and, and cheaper company car tax. So why not? I'm, I'm pleased that that more manufacturers um, like Ferrari or McLaren are are embracing this tech, because it does make the car better. Mm. However you define better, it makes the car better. Oh, the, uh, the McLaren Artura is yet to be listed on uh, Comcar company car tax calculator, unfortunately. Oh, that, is, <laughs> that is
0: disappointing. Only a matter of time. But the Lecky BMW... That's due to go back at some point soon, isn't it? Uh,
2: yes, it is. That's a good point. So uh, yes, it's uh, it's due to go back in... Uh, Someone in July, I think. Either June or July.
0: I forget which. So, the question is, what replaces it?
2: Uh, well, put, putting my dealership brand loyalty hat back on, um, then I think probably, for, for the simple reason that it's free on the company car tax, it's probably going to be a Ford Mackey, I suggest. As, uh, as Ford have recently decided that actually we are allowed to sell them. So hopefully they'll be sending us a demonstrator so I can I can put my name
0: on that one. And that's a difficult bullet to have to take, isn't it? You know, just that... High performance, all electric. My heart bleeds for you. It's it's not it's not a Mustang, though, is it? It's just. It isn't. Really.
2: I still can't quite get excited about uh, about an SUV. Having said that, I get lots of the reviews say that it, it drives wonderfully, and the uh, from spending a bit of time in the the Cougar Febs when they're not catching fire, having that battery nice and low down and and lowering the centre of gravity actually just makes the car ride and handle much much better so the the traditional downside of an suv having a high center of gravity if uh, if it's offset as much as it is in a plug-in hybrid with uh, what 160 170 kilos worth of battery at the bottom of the floor then 900 kilos of weight that low down i'd i'd be surprised actually if if it feels top heavy at all at all i'd say with the weight being that low down it, it'll feel Probably not much
0: different from a normal saloon car. I would have thought. But this is the problem, isn't it? Because you think if you were driving a normal saloon car and that had the battery lower down, it'd be better still.
2: Exactly. Yeah. It's always it 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 provides a benefit, and it's and it certainly makes it better. But it's a bit like the uh, the high roof line where they've painted the top bit black. So that as long as you're parked against a relatively dark background, or the car colour is uh, is particularly light, then it makes that top bit of the roof disappear. But if the top bit of the roof wasn't there in the first place, you wouldn't have to
0: do that, so yeah. You know what this reminds me of? You know when uh, people paint a picture of a supercar on the side of a van, have you seen this? And the wheel arches <laughs> where the wheels are, it makes it look like there's a supercar or whatever part next to it. Or when you see estate agents or plumbers or whatever, and it they look they've got graphics on the side of the car that makes it look like the door's missing and that they're sat there on a toilet or or what have you, and you can see inside. That's what it reminds me of when manufacturers do this, where they they change the colour of of the top part of the car to try and make it look a bit more swoopy. It is a bit of a cheat, and I'm I'm not quite sure I'm fully on board with it. Really, I don't know if if you've got that sort of sharp line, why not make a feature of it? Have the curvy roof bit, and then have a feature of the uh, of of the high bit of roof above it. Make it into a little spoiler or something, and just make it look like it's supposed to be there rather than pretending it isn't
1: or that it's a failed camper van
0: (laughs) going back to the whole it's not a mustang thing though i do understand why ford have done this and i think it's just about making it a more exciting product a more attractive proposition because when someone says i'm driving a a ford and it's a forty, sixty thousand pound Ford, or I'm driving a Mustang. I think the idea of owning a Mustang, at least in name, is more attractive. And there are a lot of people that buy a car based on the snob value of the badge on the front.
2: Yeah, I think the well, the the Mackie doesn't have a uh, a single Ford badge on it, does it? I think maybe on the glass somewhere.
0: On the um, glass, or, yeah,
2: yeah, t- tucked away on the odd part underneath, as a a mark with a part number on it. Um, but it's uh, no, it's, it's got a Mustang pony badge at the front and uh, and. You know, no no exterior for branding because when, um, when you say, uh, what do you drive, there are plenty of makes and models where you need to say the manufacturer as well as the name. And then there's the odd manufacturer where you only need to say the name and then there's some models where you only need to say the model. So, as you said, what do you drive? Mustang. That nobody says, oh, and, you know, and unless it's that random parking company that, that we were trying to book your Focus RS in with one day. <laughs> said, to, to park your blue Ford Deu, press one now. What? No. and <laughs> But you can say, what do you drive? Mustang. Uh, I think uh, going the other way, you can say, what do you drive? Tesla. Yeah, And actually, it's, people very rarely ask what model Tesla you drive. You just drive a Tesla. Uh, I think with uh, with lots of cars, where you need to say the first, you know, the manufacturer and the car itself um, is is a slight disadvantage. But no, I think if if you've got a brand name as strong as Mustang, what do you drive? Mustang. There's a little of equity in then it, isn't there? It's, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's their name. They can use it how they like. Whether it upsets everybody who uh, who has a classic Mustang or wanted a Mustang or whatever else is probably neither here nor there, I would have thought.
1: Well, it shows the halo effect. Of, uh, it has lasted a very long time in this instance. I mean, you know, this Mustang came out what, '64. I can remember bumping into not very long ago in a supermarket car park. I got talking to a chap who'd got a a relatively new Mustang, you know, five, six years old, something like that, and he was telling me that he was he's policy was trading backwards he was gradually going to trade them in to buy older and older mustangs so eventually he'd finish up with a 60s mustang which is what he really wanted all the time but couldn't afford uh, mm. and they say if you if you really want the best mustang it's the 64 and a half apparently there were some upgrades in the middle model year uh, which made it the most desirable of all
2: see i i appeared to be doing the same thing trading backwards or uh or trading Older cars for uh, for the wife with the random pile taxes that that seem to come in. She's uh, just jumped back to a uh, a car registered in the year two thousand. Would you believe? But it's um, actually in a slightly better nick than the other car that was registered in two thousand and five. You'll be watching the cat on that. Oh well, probably <laughs> yes. A the cat's probably worth more than the car. Uh, I dare say it is. To be fair,
1: can I add one more story in on the cats because it's true story. Uh, I when they f- very very first appeared. Uh, and I wrote an article in one newspaper about the cat, uh, and the, the editor got a complaint uh, about the uh, your motoring correspondent mistreating animals, keeping a cat in the car. This is true. This is about eighty nine or something eighty eight, and you know, and he he actually phoned me up and said, "Well, what's that all about then?" Because he wasn't abro across the technology either. What year was that? Uh, late eighties. From memory. So,
2: so I, di- I didn't realize snowflakes have been around since the late 80s. That's probably one of the <laughs> earliest reported sightings of one of them, isn't it?
0: Tesla, so it has been rumored this week, are not too far off releasing their Model 2, as everyone calls it. We don't actually know what it's going to be called. Because originally, the S, X, Y, and 3 were supposed to be, well, the 3 was supposed to be an E, so it could read sexy. So where, where, where are we going? With this? The we're sexy, so
2: this is sexy 2. Sexy, sexy two. to, sexy to you.
0: No, sexy what to what you. do they do? Just keep adding Ys on the end of it.
2: I Don't sexy. know. I mean, if they called it an I? Do you think is is it sexy? I know it. No. Secondly,
0: we need a Model A so we can have sexy and I know it. Why not? But the rumours are that it could be about twenty grand or so, or about twenty five grand plus the before you get the bits taken off for buying an electric car. So a genuinely achievable attainable tesla the model 3 now is is relatively attainable as far as electric cars go if you think you can splash out if you felt so compelled on something like a an electric course or if you don't want someone to know you're driving an electric car as, as people obviously say or indeed care about cars in general you could buy one of those uh for the best part of, of 30 grand or you could go out and buy a model 3 for about 40 odd or a mackie or whatever same sort of money but if you think a Fiesta sized Tesla, or maybe maybe slightly bigger, somewhere between Fiesta and Focus, say, being about 25 grand, I think that's that's gonna have a lot of badge appeal if that's the kind of thing you're into. But supposedly it'll have a lot of the features or most of the features of the bigger cars, and if it has that, then I think that could be potentially a world beater. Would I buy a Tesla? Well, there is a question. Yes, I think I probably would. And to be honest, if I was looking to spend forty ish, forty and a bit grand on family car right now then I think I would seriously consider looking at a Model 3 because it's not just it's not just the cars themselves which I think the Model 3 has has moved up a step in terms of build quality particularly now it's had a facelift it's the charging network that Tesla has which sets it apart from everyone else and I know other manufacturers are saying oh well we've got 9,000 chargers of this and we've got more access to this that and the other but when you go to a services and you see just a whole rack of superchargers sat there and you see a couple of normal ev charging points that probably don't work anyway and require 57 apps to make it work which would you rather go to and why is there four or five times as many superchargers there are any other electric car charging point i think it goes to show that they've gone about this the right way i think the problem is a lot of the car manufacturers have gone about electric cars like a car manufacturer and Tesla haven't done this. They've, they've approached it from a different point of view, got the infrastructure sorted out and then built a car. Tesla are a, a very good technology and, uh, I don't know, for want
2: of a better word, mobility company, I suppose, aren't they? That certainly in the early days, they weren't actually that good at building cars or... Delivering cars, etc., but they they do seem to be getting the hang of that now. But they, I I still don't get the whole, uh, you know, range charging points, etc. I was chatting with a, a customer the other day when I dropped their car back after service. Uh, and I know, I know we've had a weird year, but she you know she'd done a thousand miles since the last service, and we were talking about electric, and she's oh you know we need be, you know better charging points, etc. I said you'd only need to charge it three times a year, so I'm sure you can find one that works in the space of four months, and and she. Said, uh, you know, her other half works in Portsmouth, and I said, Well, that's, that's absolutely fine. He'd, he'd need to charge it twice a week if he went to Portsmouth every day. But I think what the the average miles in the UK these days for the average motorist is what 10, 11, 12,000 miles. So anything Less with a that. 300 mile range, yeah, it's, it's dropped off a lot certainly in the last mm. year, but it's probably on a downward trend anyway. Um, yeah, it was, you know, but worse. he's. Even if you do 12,000 miles a year, well, you know, an electric car with a 300-mile range, you only need to charge it 40 times a year, so once a week. So if you've got a wall box at home, plug it in and charge it on a Saturday night, and that's you. You're done. You you charge it once a week, and that's it.
1: I think there's still a very common misconception that the typical ranges are 100 miles or less. Mm. Uh, And and I don't think the industry has really successfully overcome that sort of that that common misunderstanding
2: Maybe half the reason that, that younger people buy more electric cars is, uh, you know, they, they remember being impoverished students or going to college and, and putting in £2.50 because you worked out it would last you the week and, and you knew your own mm. car. You know, you knew how many trips you could do to the McDonald's drive through and back on £4.78 because that's all you had left after you bought a pack of fags, etc. So that, that having to have the car fully topped up all the
0: time is uh, is maybe an older generation thing, I don't know. Maybe it's the iPhone generation. so You think your Nokia thirty three ten or thirty three thirty, or whatever, you charge it up and it would last you a week. Your iPhone's dead by the end of the day, so uh, maybe people got used to that. But my parents have uh,
2: have recently moved house, but they've uh, they rent their old house, so they've still got it for the uh, the next month or so. So I'd uh, pop round there whilst it was all empty and uh, and they weren't around. You know, keeping social distancing, of course, they're in a completely separate household. So I went up there. I was clearing out boxes from uh, you know when we moved in there twenty odd years ago. So. Reminiscing through the old toys and bits and pieces that have been shoved up there, I actually found a Nokia phone which, uh, which still had two bars of battery left on it, which I didn't
0: think <laughs> was bad after 20 years. There is a problem with electric cars though, and that is cars like the Honda E do have a pretty small range. And it's all like 120 odd miles. Then the Mini is about 150 miles, and the course is a couple hundred miles. But this time of year, they a pretty it's small cold, cars, so it's fine. They are small cars, and yes, you probably only use them as small cars around town or the rest of it, so it's not so much of a problem. But this time of year, if you own an EV, a lot of people say don't use the heating unless you've got uh, an air source pump, whatever it's called. Put the heated seats on uh, and make sure you precondition the battery. Because if you don't do that, you lose a lot of range very quickly. Mm. And you see that in some of the FEVs as well. And we were talking about this earlier on because we were chatting about a FEV with a a normal 35-mile range. And this time of year, it's about 25. And you lose that bit. Um, just because it's cold and batteries like to be about the same sort of temperature we do, so about 20 degrees, and it uses a lot of power, heating itself up. So if you are driving an electric car, most people when they do, they'll quite often get home and then plug the thing in, just to keep the thing topped up ready. But also because in the morning then you can preheat the car, precondition the battery, and you get better range out of it. And realistically, how often do you drive more than 100 miles in one go? Probably Not that often, and if you do, you'd probably buy an e v with a bigger range anyway, wouldn't you
2: well exactly yeah, i mean I think the the most i 've ever driven without stopping is um yeah well, it was probably just just over three hundred miles actually um but that was on the German autobahn, and traffic was light, so I thought I'd make reasonable progress so it uh it was, you know three hundred miles in this country would probably take you the best part of six hours to be fair, it was certainly less than that in uh, in Germany. I think with a quick charge that most EVs have these days, you know, the time it takes you to uh, wander in, get a cup of coffee, use the loo, and come back out again—that certainly probably put fifty, sixty, seventy, maybe even eighty percent back in your battery, uh, and off you go again. See, it's, it's, it's just changing habits and and things like that. You know, if you've been running around in internal combustion cars for years and years and years, it takes a bit of getting used to, but it is fun when you do get used to it. Fingers crossed we won't uh, need EVs, or we can have EVs, but the uh, the range anxiety won't be a thing, and, uh, and Porsche will hurry up and develop their uh, synthetic fuel. I'm slightly worried about the cost at this stage, but if it, uh, if it means we get to keep our petrol powered or petrol in inverted commas petrol powered
0: play things going for a bit longer than uh, them. fair play to them yeah i'm not going to talk about this because i made a complete and utter a hash up of talking about it last time so if you want to hear me completely not managing to explain this in any kind of eloquent fashion then by all means check out our previous podcast on the website at ukmotortalk.co.uk or find it via the socials um at ukmotortalk pretty much everywhere
1: Did anybody notice that uh, Red Bull had uh, Checo in the car for for two days?
2: Uh, yeah, I we've had a few uh, a few livery reveals. Uh, s- some of them are the same but different, and uh, some of them are the same but completely the same. Uh, I think the, the Alphas, both the Alpha Tauri and the Alpha Romeo, their livery seems fairly similar to last year, but the colours are the other way round. Uh, so the white has gone from the bottom to the top and vice versa uh and the uh, and the red or the blue as applicable is applicable as swap round but uh, no there's, I think the the most interesting story this year is going to be the driver market shake up and uh return of some old faces but fernando had a, a rather nasty cycling accident and apparently smashed his uh, his face to pieces and had to have reconstructive surgery on his jaw and teeth um but then posted pictures of himself back in the gym a couple of days later looking fit as a fiddle so he's uh, he's obviously in remarkably good shape to recover that quick but it's uh, i think it's more proof that uh, cycling is uh, is very very dangerous for you
1: Yes, yeah, you shouldn't, uh, if you are an insurance company, allow your Formula One clients uh, onto bicycles, because they all seem to come to grief. Certainly uh, Alonso is the latest victim. but I seem to remember Mark Webber breaking a leg and, and an arm, but it's not the first time that uh, cycling accidents have uh, incapacitated a driver.
2: Mountain bikes are uh, far safer if, uh, if you tend to fall off. At least you're only sort of bouncing along the ground rather than into uh, motor vehicles going the other way.
0: You say that, but the last time you crashed your mountain bike, it looked like a dog had tried to bite your arm off.
2: Is that when I elbowed a tree at about 30 miles an hour? Because I was just a little bit too wide for the gap. Yes. Yes. It it hurt like... I did invent some new swear words, but I I was generally okay. I I carried on riding for the rest of that ride. I was fine. Mm,
1: I didn't. I aborted my uh, cycling experience when I fell off in a a lake of mud and decided that was enough for me. That's over fifty years since I'd ridden a bike, and uh, it's not something I intend to take up again. And uh, I'm still trying to get the mud off myself.
2: Falling into a lake of muds, all right. It's falling into a rock or a tree that hurts a little bit more. But I, uh, I fell off once and uh, hit the ground reasonably hard. And then the uh, the watch went off and said, "Oh, it looks like uh, you've had a hard fall. Do you want me to call the emergency services for you?" Uh, pre, you know, press no to cancel. But the only problem was I had a, a glove on, so I couldn't press the button on the watch to say that I was okay, and it didn't need to call the emergency services for me. And uh, so, yeah, I managed to uh, to get a glove off and uh, press a button on the watch with with
0: the bike still wrapped up around me. I had a, a, a pretty heavy crash on a, on a mountain bike. Funny enough, I was gonna, I was determined to try and hit forty miles an hour, and I left it a bit too late to stop and to brake. Um, and so when I did brake and locked everything up, eventually went over on on my on my side to try and really slow down, uh, and even with the pedaling, went with two <laughs> wheels straight into a, a, a quite a substantial fence. And came came off the bike. More irritating was I got to thirty nine point eight. <laughs> oh, see the the fastest I've ever hit
2: downhill, and it's uh, it's on a big hill. It's pretty much from the, the top of the downs all the way back to sea level around the back of Amberley. I think I hit fifty. Two miles an hour going downhill, and uh, at that speed, it I did really wrong. think, yeah, if if, uh, if I fall off now, this is really, really, really going to hurt. But uh, luckily, I didn't, so it was all right.
1: I'm still smarting from the uh, the lady walking her dog who wandered past me as I laid sort of semi comatose in the mud. Are you all right, dear? No, of course I I, I I do this all the time. I really enjoy doing this. Of course, I'm not all right.
0: Only the depth there is Graham. <laughs>
1: I was fortunate enough to, uh, amongst the pile of books I was given for Christmas, was a book I missed about three years ago, which was a sort of, it's a rather curious book, it's an Adrian Newey biography, but it's called How to Build a Car, which is an incredibly unimaginative title. Um, But it's about the origins of his interest in cars, like all of us, I think. He started off uh, uh, his dad taking him racing when he was a kid, Uh, And he always wanted to get into Formula 1, but he took a slightly unusual route, which was to do an aeronautics degree because he realised that if he did a mechanical engineering degree, he'd probably end up working for one of the big players, just doing a job, and he wouldn't get to Formula 1. He's had a quite extraordinary career. He's produced any number of championship-winning cars and up until recently continued to do so. He also touches on the recent history where Red Bull, in being desperate to retain his services, have allowed him the latitude to design other things. For example, the Aston Martin hypercar, which is almost entirely his work. And I heard his name mentioned again the other day in respect of the um, latest America's Cup design. So, you know, he sees that as, um, as aerodynamics underwater. You know, it's, the, the effects are the same. was a fascinating character and a very open, very frank, yeah, in terms of his private life, autobiography. And I've met uh, Adrian a few times. He's an enormously uh, interesting man. You know, I, I sort of suggested that he thinks so far outside the box that nobody can see the box any longer. And that does seem to be the case.
0: From the Archive, Goodwood Revival, 2012.
1: You would not ordinarily think that uh, the Goodwood revival would necessarily be a place to encounter one of the most successful Formula One designers, engineers, wizards of all time. But I am sitting here talking to Red Bull's Adrian Newey, and you're here driving a car which is the technology of which is, what, 50 years old? Does does that give you some some sort of qualms that you want to improve it, or...?
3: No, respect for what engineers achieved at the time. I mean, the two cars I've got here GT40 and an E-Type, and you look at them and the technology, then they're very advanced at the time, both monocoque, the E-Type, obviously a derivative of the D-Type, which, in truth, as a monocoque car, was well ahead of Formula 1 cars at the time. Um in the gt40 very well engineered car obviously built for long distance so a little bit on the heavy side for these sorts of events um but i think just that 60s period was such a great period for cars i I guess to some degree it
1: depends on i'm a little older than you but it depends on where you came in because i'm i guess a a sucker for 50s cars um but for you it's 60s cars but i mean you have a fair sized car collection i think of your own now
3: Few bits and bobs, yes. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, the car that started it all off was a 1938 SS100 Jaguar. Um, where the pre-war the uh, SS was the the model name, swallow sidecars, but uh, post-war that wasn't really the name to have anymore. So <laughs> SS became Jaguar, um, and I did quite a few um, long-distance rallies, Liege-Jerome, Milimilia, that sort of thing in the car. Uh, and we had a great fun in it. Um, And I suppose from that, just then fancied doing a bit of competitive driving. Um, Bought the GT40 on the advice of a friend as being a good car to to, um, purchase and race, that would be fun to race. And then, uh, actually, sounds ridiculous given the industry I'm in, I didn't realise you needed a thing called a racing licence. So I (laughs) applied to the race here, the Revival, and they said, well, yes, okay, but you need a... And a um, national race licence so I then stepped back and um, went about getting my licence and came here the following year
1: but, I mean you've been here for quite a number of years now, it really has become a fixture in your calendar, it's clearly, I, I know Christian's here as well because I saw him and said hello a few minutes ago, you both seem to love it here
3: ah, it's, a, it's a great event it's, um, it's, it's relaxed, it's great to see all these old cars out here, everybody gets into the, into the spirit of the event um, so yes, I do. Yeah, I think uh, I think if memory serves me well, 2004 was my first event here in the GT40, and been coming here pretty much ever since.
1: There, there was a reason for asking you the question, I guess, in as much as I've just come more or less direct from the historic racing conversation, which is going on in the press centre, where a number of drivers of a, of a slightly older vintage. Are discussing whether the cars should be modernised, brought up to modern safety standards, and almost without exception, they're saying no, no, we don't want to do that. Uh, and uh, Sterling was an interesting quote: "The the Maserati 250F. Would you really put a roll hoop on that and full seat belts and you know and wear a modern helmet? Surely not."
3: It's. I think it's a difficult one. Um, that whole dilemma. I, I think for me, the main thing is if you do do anything to the car then it has to be reversible so if it's bolt on bolt off, I think that's acceptable if it's if it involves cutting into the car then I'd say that isn't
1: So you're driving the two cars during the course of the weekend, you've qualified both I guess now, how did that go?
3: Uh, no, I've only been out in the GT40 so far, um, so qualified 7th in that, uh, which I th- think was the quickest of the GT40s but the um Canam Lola's and McLaren's are a fair bit quicker so but I mean, I think that, you know that's not to detract from the event. It's, it's not simply whether you win the race; it's, it's the whole thing that we come for. it's,
1: it's all here for it's the taking part as much as the winning, isn't it? It's, it's just great fun
3: being out there. Yeah, it is. It really is. It's um, it's a it's a compared to the industry I'm involved in during as my day job, then it's it really is a world apart, and and that's why to me it doesn't in any way feel a busman's holiday.
1: As, as a Formula One designer, you're constantly pushing at the very edges of what is achievable. And uh, you've had, as a team, some issues over the last couple of races, and everybody seems to be. I, it, I mean, do you ever think to yourself, well, we've, we've pushed these cars as far as we can go with them, or do you just get on with fixing what went wrong and, and make sure it doesn't happen again?
3: Uh, the answer is you always keep pushing, always try to find something new. Um, In truth, we're now the fourth year into a pretty stable set of regulations where all that's happened in those four years regulation-wise is further restrictions have been introduced. So there's actually less flexibility, if you like, in the rules than there was four years ago. Uh, I think that's a shame because it does mean that everybody starts to converge on the same solution.
1: I get the impression that's what's happening and because the solutions are, are converging, um, people are experiencing the same sort of problems. They're, they're they're pushing, perhaps mechanical tolerances as far as they can go.
3: Yes, I mean it, we have a we have a very tight rule book, um, of hundreds of pages. I think if you looked at the rule books of the seventies, then I they're sort of so yes, yeah, it's probably about like five pizza, pages. Yeah, <laughs> um, the old ones have been sort of minimum width and a maximum width, and that's about it. Get on with it. Um, those regulations say does, do mean that to some extent the car is designed for you, um, and in that sense it it is a shame. We obviously have to have rules. We have we have to, in particular, have rules that protect the driver's safety. I think that's um, you know it's, it's interesting what you said about Sterling and views from from the fifties and sixties, but uh, it's very different. It, it's a very different view, and, and the, the world has changed. That's the fact.
1: I mean, there, there was much discussion recently of whether there should be some sort of protection on top of the drivers in, in Formula 1 cars. Well, perhaps if that was the case, they'd be Group C sports cars, but I, 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 don't, I don't know whether you have a view on that, but I, but I think there are, there are people involved in Formula 1 now who wouldn't see that as that, that a good step forward that would change the nature
3: of Formula 1. I think, yes, closed cockpit would change the nature of Formula 1, for sure. But I, I do fully support trying to make the cars as safe as possible nobody wants to see a driver hurt um, and one of the greatest risks now for driver safety is, is the fact that the head the helmet is still exposed
1: oh, well, I mean, I think the video evidence of uh, Mark's flip, what, two seasons ago now that's, that's yeah. absolutely horrifying to watch I watched it again recently it's uh, quite frightening, that must have been real heart and mouth stuff for you on the pit wall as well
3: Yes, I mean in truth it was over so quickly. Yeah. And, uh, you see him fling the steering wheel and um, you know, if a driver flings a steering wheel, he you knows okay. Okay. Yeah.
1: I think Sid Watkins, God rest his soul, uh, sort of Martin Brundle when he landed upside down in the in the gravel, you know, if he if he ran back and asked me if he could get in the in the spare car, then he was making probably more sense than he usually did, so it was safe to let him go. I mean, would you go with that?
3: Sid was a great character and he had a way of words in, 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 on those sorts of things, so uh, his judgment will be ahead of mine on that. <laughs>
1: thank you very much, Adrian. Have a jolly good weekend. and thank you for your time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. It's been, okay. it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Clearly, he's held in such uh, awe by uh, Christian and everybody else at Red Bull, and particularly Massachusetts, that uh, he's going to be there for as long as they can keep him there. Very interesting. I can commend it to anybody. And if you want the inside gossip on... Some of the driver relationships there. he has been very frank in that area as well. Fascinating read.
2: Yeah, I'll have to. Uh, I'll have to look that one up. I've been lucky enough to meet Adrian uh, a couple of times as well. And once I was at the uh, University of Sussex uh, Formula Student launch night of uh, of all evenings. Uh, I Got invited along, so I popped along, and there was uh, there was Adrian Newey and, uh, and Ross Noble there for. Some obscure reasons. It was quite uh, quite fascinating to chat to the pair of them. Uh, but I said to uh, to Adrian, "Why why why are you here? Um, oh, but my daughter's over there." Oh, right. OK. So his daughter was there studying uh, motorsport engineering and competing in, uh, in Formula Student. I mean, you know, the back in the day when you get your parents to give you a hand with your homework, um, <laughs> you know, they, uh, have, study, you know, oh, what's, what's your homework? Assignment? I've got to design and build a racing car. Dad, can I bury your factory for a few hours? And <laughs> dad, can you just design this for me? But it was a uh, no, really nice and, uh, and humble and, and down-to-earth bloke as well. But I think the the freedom yeah. is an important thing. I think whether it was uh at Williams what he was and wasn't allowed to do or, or how involved he was, I think one of the reasons he left Williams was, was A, their treatment of drivers, uh, but B, he, he wanted a share of the team, didn't he? He wanted a bit of skin in the game and, you know, if, yeah. if I'm here yeah. and part of the family there's uh, there was Frank and Patrick who, who owned the place and he wanted... Uh, not unequalled, equal but certainly a say in things um, as chief designer of the car and, uh, and didn't get that so off he went to McLaren and then I think at McLaren he was uh, just a bit stifled but I, th- I think we saw a similar thing with Lewis didn't we at McLaren is in, certainly in Ron Dennis's day very corporate, very regimented, very organised um, you know everybody had a sensible haircut and wasn't allowed a beard etc and Lewis seems to have flourished outside that environment you know with the freedom that Mercedes allow him uh, and Adrian's the same at Red Bull, really. So one can uh, only imagine if Adrian ended up going to Mercedes, how uh, how dominant they'd be for how long.
1: Right, so there was a wonderful story about the, the McLaren years. Uh, it wasn't until he'd actually joined the company and stepped into uh, their wonderful new headquarters that he realised Ron's obsession with pale grey. And everything was pale grey. And uh, he got so fed up with it. Uh, within a few weeks, um, that uh, one night when they had the builders in making some changes. He decided to leave by an exit that wasn't an approved exit and wasn't pale grey. He basically sort of broke out of the building and was carpeted by Ron the following day because his unauthorised exit had been caught on the CCTV system. And Ron gave him a bollocking. So, you know, you can see perhaps why somebody who I'd compared to um, his notebooks being on a par with Leonardo da Vinci's wouldn't sit too well with Ron's obsession with um, the things and the way Ron did things. I mean, you know, the, the, the classic example was that, uh, you know, when the trucks pulled up at the, the the paddock, all of the tracks would be jacked up and their and the, the, the wheels correctly aligned so that the tyre sponsor wasn't unhappy that the name of the tyres wasn't at the t- very top. You know, that that was that obsession to detail. So I like that. But that could be wearing, I think.
0: Yes, I think it would be. Um, uh, <laughs> I think uh, there's there's certain aspects of things that I do that... That that most certainly probably are very wearing in that in that in that same way. But I I I do find that that approach and that attention to detail really quite inspirational. I suppose in 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 some ways, I like the uh, I like the idea that everything is is just so and it is as perfect as it can possibly be. And I find it irritating if something isn't. So if something's out of place, I I find it uh, it, it makes me anxious when I'm in a load of mess. I like things to be to be right and regimented and just so. But uh, there, there are those that say that that, that puts me somewhere uh, on the autistic spectrum. I think that's possibly possibly the case. I have well, no idea.
1: But... Well, we we probably all are, but I mean that that can be taken to extreme, and and you know t- certainly if one is to believe the the stories, uh, Ron as a man uh, would take that to extreme. But then he would do things way in advance of anybody else. For example, the the tiling of the garage floors, the pit floors. Uh, that's that's Ron's idea he wanted the pit floors to be absolutely spotless so they arrived at every pit with a truckload of tiles carefully laid in place on the concrete floor he didn't want oil splashes and so on and so on on his uh, uh, on his pit floors that's you know his obsession to detail interesting that all the others followed it not long after so a lot of the things that, that Ron started others did
2: there's a certain level of attention to uh, to detail that's acceptable you know i'm sure we've all done it if we've been refitting uh tires you know you always make sure that the locking wheel nut is either opposite or in line with the valve depending on where the valve is or how many nuts you've got etc and uh, make sure the badge is the right way round. but then i don't know i think occasionally if uh, if you're up to your neck in it and racing and you've got to uh to rebuild a car you know in in 12 minutes on the grid or whatever it is that red bull did it just before uh, the Grand Prix, when Verstappen ripped a quarter off it, you know there's there's no yeah, time for yeah. perfection or make sure you've put your spanners away or you've filed this, that, or the other. It's, uh, it's just get stuck in and get on with it. So, I think that uh, that approach lends itself well to uh, to certain areas and certain careers. You know, if uh, if you were having a house built, for example, you'd want Ron Dennis to be your project manager for it because uh, he could take his time and everything would be perfect. But if uh, if you've got three minutes to get something done, otherwise you're not making the start of the race. You know, don't, uh, as Brundle says, don't have a committee meeting about it. Just stick it on and get on with it.
1: It's it's interesting. One of the stories he tells is one of the reasons he went to Red Bull is because they allowed him to combine two roles, effectively, the the designer and the race engineer, which is something he wanted to do. So he could as you've seen him uh, over recent years with Red Bull, wandering around checking the car with his clipboard and so on and so on. He loves that role as well as designing them. But it's intriguing that uh, this is a man who still, for all the technology he's come up with, he still does most of his designing in pencil, he specifies which pencil, on an old-fashioned drawing board. He then hands various minions, pieces of paper which they then convert to a digital image and that's the way he's choosing to work i,
2: I like that well I've, uh, I've been lucky enough to uh to have a tour of uh, of a couple of formula one factories actually one was mclaren uh back in uh in 2008 uh 2000 yeah 2008 sort of time and uh within the last couple of years Red Bull. uh yeah and and having stood in adrian's office you know it's, it's fascinating the way he gets his uh his emails printed out for him and put on his desk to read. It's a uh, it's, it's a wonderful approach to it. But yeah, the, that drawing board, which I think is the same drawing board he's had for years and years and years. Just that mm. uh, the cars that have been designed on that and the uh, the stories that could tell. But yeah, it's 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 uh, it's interesting the way his brain works, and that he can he can simply visualise it in his head. And actually looking around the cars, he can just visualise how things work. Uh, and work out how to do it better or how to adapt that or integrate that into his design it's uh, it's it's wonderful to watch but it's uh, it's a world away from uh lots of uh, lots of modern car design or racing car design which is all computer led and oh, well the numbers tell me that it should be better we? yes but that doesn't take into account x y and z that happens in real life but i think one of the issues red bull have had uh, certainly last year has been the um the unpredictability of the car and, yeah. uh, and although uh, bits of it work well on computer and it should work well, then it works well 80% of the time. There's that 20% of the time when it doesn't work. Um, the problem being that 20% is the middle of the corner. So it, uh, it'll be interesting to see how they get on this year if they've managed to get any closer to uh, to Mercedes at the front of the field. i see that the car sprouted a few more aerodynamic appendages. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll see how
0: those work. What's interesting, I think, about race cars is until you get to that the top levels they are far from perfect aren't they and if you're the kind of person that deals with with that perfection i mean mechanically yes but when you stand close to to a race car and you said about how quick they have to be put back together in the event of an accident or something similar race cars always look better i think from eight foot plus away it's when you get that bit closer to them and you go oh that livery is a little bit, uh, or, or there's a bit of tape there. That's a bit odd, or, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's these little bits and pieces that that you notice. You go, yeah, that is far from perfect until you are at that top level. They kind of have to be like that though, because uh, you know, we
2: we prepped a um, a car from a, a bare shell, you know, bare metal respray. Um, repainted the interior all color-coded and flocked the dashboard etc and the, this car was built you know brand new ground up respray everything it was immaculate it was absolutely perfect it was beautiful this car is mini for the mini challenge but it was it it was almost too good to race you know the uh the first shakedown for it is you know it's brand new it's fresh paint Etc. And you think just no that what what needs to happen with that now is it has the number plates bolted back on it, slightly soften the suspension, and and use it as a road car or a show car or something like that. I think that the best way is when you're not too fussy about it. You can't race a car flat out if you're worried about scratching a wheel arch or uh, or getting a stone chip on it somewhere, can you? No, this is true.
1: <clears throat> this has always been the argument against American classic car racing, hasn't it? Because you know, the very rich owners of very rare cars and don't try so hard whereas it's always said in this country they they simply try harder they they, they race the cars rather than parading the cars but
2: well, i think it was uh, it was nick mason said wasn't it well the the car's insured and it's irreplaceable so no matter what i do to it they have to fix it because you hmm. can't buy another one so no matter how big a shunt i have in it they will fix it oh right fair enough okay crack on then and uh, and he does
1: it's a fascinating story about the condition that uh, that 250 GTO was in when he bought it. I think he did a book called Into the Red, I think it was, with sound effects, a uh, CD, uh, and so on and so on. But it was uh, all the cars in his collection and what he'd had to do to get them uh, in into good order, uh, into the order they're sort of in. And And the 250 GTO was a bit sad, apparently, when he bought it and he needed to do... I think he spent about three or four times as much on it as he paid for it. Uh, and this is one of the rarest cars in the world. What was it 36, 37 of them? Nobody ever lets a GTO go.
2: Yeah, I'm going I'm to guess that that was, a, uh,
0: that was a good investment, though. I'm going to guess that that's paid off.
1: Long term, I should certainly think so.
0: See, I do the same thing with 300-pound bangers. <laughs> End up spending four times on what the were That is in no way a good financial decision. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's all relative, isn't
2: it? When I've spent more money on a year's road tax than I have for the actual car, or when I've spent more money on four tyres than I have for the actual car, it's a it's a slightly different ball game.
0: There we go. I think time over. If I was going to go through uni and all that palaver again, I probably would have done something like motorsport engineering or automotive engineering because I just find it more interesting, to be honest. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, and it's uh, yeah certainly something I would have done. But they they tend not
2: to publicise the uh, the courses too much. It's, it's Come around more and more in uh, in recent years, but yeah, going back uh back to our day at uni, it wasn't uh, massively widely offered or uh, or advertised, was it? Unfortunately, but like anything, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Uh, if you could drop all your knowledge and experience as a thirty, forty, fifty, sixty-year-old into your into your body at sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years old, you'd uh, you'd be very wealthy and uh, probably a lot better off, wouldn't you?
0: I think so. Well, Mm -hmm. next time we speak to you, there's going to be some more Formula One to talk about, isn't there, Jim? Yes
1: we're back on track.
0: Obviously we've uh, spoken about the, a
2: few livery reveals and or car launches that we've had already. Uh, I think all the car launches you need to take with a pinch of salt. I think they're they're very much just, oh this is kind of what it's going to look like, but it's bits we've cobbled together and nothing's actually what it should be. Um, but we'll, uh, we'll hopefully have seen a few more and we're not too far away from pre-season testing as well. So I think with the, uh, although yeah, as we've said, the lack of rules and regulations shake up might lead to more of the same you know, hopefully the driver market shake up and a bit of refinement of uh, of Red Bull products, and uh, I think Ferrari have uh, It's just come out this week, Ferrari were told not to use as much fuel as everybody else was using in the races, hence their distinct lack of power over last year. Uh, So, uh, I'd I'm not sure if if they've served their time and and they've been on fuel rations, so this year they're they're all of a sudden expected to be able to turn the wick back up again. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how uh, how the Ferrari-powered teams get on as well.
1: Yeah, it looks like being an interesting season. The launches are always good to see, but we're going to be in the same position as everybody else. We won't know, they don't know, but we can speculate along with the best of them based upon many many years experience we can we can hazard guesses as to who's going to be doing what to who along with anybody that's paid oodles of money to do so we know our stuff
0: and on that mountain pile of cash it's probably time for us to say goodbye for another week it's been a pleasure chatting to you as always check us out on the socials facebook twitter and instagram at uk motor talk and at uk motor talk co uk if you have other comments of course you can not write to us if you want to but please don't at uk motor talk towers p.o box whatever it is or just send us a tweet or a dm or something because hey it's 2021 now unless you listen to this in 2022 in which case it probably isn't 2021 anymore but for me mike <laughs> goodbye from me jim it's goodbye
1: and for me graham it's good night
0: bye UK Motor Talk, a First Take Media production.